Well, hello and welcome to a special edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my beautiful wife, Janet, and we are super excited to have Dr. Peter McCullough on our podcast today. It's an honor and a privilege. We have met him in Idaho a few months back, and we are just excited that he accepted the invitation to become on on our podcast. And our goal is to spread the word about just educating and empowering patients to take charge of their own health. And we're going to be getting into that today. So, uh, Dr. McCullough, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. I'm calling in from Colorado. I'm going to ski ski vacations, hopefully exercise a bit later on today and doing what I'm trying to do with my own healthy solution. Awesome. I love it. So tell us a little bit about your um, background in medical training. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist in Dallas, Texas. I'm trained in, in epidemiology. I hold degrees from Baylor University, University of Texas Southwestern. Uh, University of Michigan and Southern Methodist University. I did my medicine residency at University of Washington in Seattle, and then my cardiology fellowship later on after public health service uh, at the what's now the Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. I practice internal medicine and non-invasive cardiology. I've last three years I've uh, evolved into a COVID-19 specialist, both for the illness, post-COVID syndromes, and now vaccine injury syndromes. And so how did you get into treating COVID, being a cardiologist, internal medicine? How'd that happen? Just serendipitously? No, early on, I was on one of the health system task forces, and uh, I had picked up the research part of this for the health system. So I had investigation and new drug application, uh, grants, research team. Uh, and it was pretty natural as a researcher, an epidemiologist, uh, someone who maintains my boards at internal medicine to pick this up. Uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus or COVID-19, uh, it, it, you know, while it's an infectious disease, it has so many different uh, manifestations that uh, there's room enough for all specialists, I think, to, to participate and help out in the pandemic. Our infectious disease doctors, for instance, uh, were completely subscribed to the inpatient service. They were offering nothing for outpatients. So m- myself and doctors in my circles uh, worked to fill that void. Janet, what questions do you have for Dr. McCullough? So in our past experience, Dr. McCullough, it felt like this was approached differently because in the past, it seemed like, you know, doctors were able to share ideas and share different treatment modalities without interference. And I feel like we we changed. Something in the paradigm changed. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? This was the topic of my June 27th, 2022 Texas Senate testimony to the uh, Health and Human Services Committee. And what I outlined for them uh, are these important concepts that with SARS-CoV-2 infection, which is potentially fatal in high-risk individuals, there's always a duty to treat for that outpatient doctor who receives that first call. There's always a duty to treat or a duty to refer. Uh, it is completely unacceptable to, to neither treat nor refer the patient for treatment. That would be a breach in a standard of care. The second is that the community standard of care is always established by practicing doctors, those who are facing the illness for the first time, uh, devising treatment protocols, evaluating the literature, reevaluating, modifying. The community standard of care 
is by practicing doctors who are actually doing that. They're practicing that part of medicine. Community standard of care is never established by medical boards or by government agencies or even by medical societies. They don't establish community standard of care. Many times those bodies run months, if not years behind the contemporary management strategies that doctors in the field are using. And what is loaded into your question is that for the first time we saw medical boards and government agencies begin to impede or interfere with the community standard of care. And that was a gross violation of uh, medical jurisprudence and medical ethics. So speak, while we're on that topic, I had a text from a physician's assistant in Washington state, and he wanted me to ask you this question. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this in Washington state or not, since you did do a residency here, you might follow some people in Washington state, but say hello to Dr. McCullough for me. If you have time, I'm a big fan and believe in his system. I've seen it positively affect a lot of people. It would be interesting if he would comment on the Washington Medical Commission's letter that was sent out stating that if you write ivermectin for COVID-19, that you were part of the COVID-19 disinformation campaign, the follow-up was that they would be looking hard at your license. In, term, in terms of allowing the public to know who the source of this information is, you know, what, what do we do? Where do we go from here when, when the Washington um, sends out letters like that to people? You know, that's a clear-cut example of a medical board trying to impede a standard of care, actually trying to hurt patient care. Uh, that would be like a medical board sending out a letter saying that we shouldn't use a certain medicine for hypertension or for diabetes. The medical board doesn't have any role in recommending or de-recommending treatments. Doctors make those decisions. You know, ivermectin is one of several dozen drugs that we use to treat SARS-CoV-2. There's no reason to single that one out more than any other one. Uh, ivermectin is a frontline, first-line government and non-government organized uh, organization recommended community standard of care uh, in dozens and dozens of treatment protocols worldwide. It's been featured by the Frontline Critical Care Consortium since March of 2020. It was in the McCullough Protocol by December of 2020. Uh, it, it's a well-acknowledged component of multi-drug treatment. Uh, it has not, there's no relationship to COVID misinformation. The, the word misinformation is a uh, basically a vaccine marketing term. We have found out that it's a propagandized marketing term that uh, came into the COVID conversation once the vaccines were introduced and the vaccine manufacturers started to work with PR and marketing firms. So where, where do we go from, from here? I mean, how do, you know, um, I put you in touch with Dr. Michael Turner, who's, who's on the front lines um, treating patients just like yourself. And his question was, as a healthcare provider, I too have been shocked and grieved by the medical community's response and have endured scrutiny and persecution for providing early treatment. As a profession, I am deeply concerned that we have lost the trust of a large portion of the population. What do you envision as a path forward to rectify this? And what barriers do we have to overcome this? Dr. Michael Turner. You know, all of these um, guilty parties. So if the, if the Washington State Medical Board is, is guilty of uh, infringement, uh, infringing upon doctors' ability to treat patients, patients' ability to receive care, all of those uh, entities that are committing wrongdoing, they have oversight. 
So there must be oversight over the Washington State Medical Board. Most states, it's the uh, either the, the Senate or the House of Representatives. It may be the Senate Health and Human Services Committee. So we simply have to go to the oversight boards and keep working our way up uh, in order to correct it. The one thing that's not going to work is uh, uh, direct fighting. Uh, it, what's not going to work is um, public pressure on these uh, medical boards. They don't seem to be responsive to this at all. Uh, they're only going to be responsive to to oversight. And we are seeing an overhaul, by the way, uh, uh, state after state. Senator uh, Mark Steffen in Kansas, uh, it, you know, through his efforts has dramatically changed uh, medical board practice. They, they can't discriminate against the use of ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. The attorney general in Nebraska did the same thing for both those drugs. So either the, the Senate oversight mechanism or the attorney general uh, of the states uh, but, but that needs to be corrected. You can't have a state medical board working to impede or infringe on the health care of the citizens of Washington state. So tell us a little bit about your book, um, The Courage to Face COVID-19. Where'd you come up with the title, first of all? Uh, the title is my idea. It's uh, The book is uh, mainly written by John Leake, who's a true crime bestselling author. He's already had bestsellers. One of them is Too Cold for Too Long. John and I spent a year on this. He came from Vienna, Austria, came to Dallas to work with me and look after his mother who lives a few miles away from me. And John's a wonderful writer. It's the only book in COVID-19 written by a full-time best-selling author and it shows. It's not a boring medical book. This is a gripping thriller. Uh, the pages uh, are, have the print, the print is large print, pages turn quickly, the chapters are short. Uh, and, and it's a very interesting and enjoyable read. It, it describes a lot of the things we're talking about, the, the initial implausibilities of what we've heard from public health officials, the, uh, the, this infringement in, in, in patient care, uh, this stripping of, of civil rights away from patients and doctors, how all this happened, what are the historical precedents for this, uh, who was involved. I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a character in the book, but so is... Uh, Dr. Vladimir Zelenko and Didier Rialt in France and Peter Novaro and former President Trump, Tucker Carlson, Joe Rogan. How, how did this whole constellation of public figures uh, come together in, in this uh, battle, if you will? In, in a sense, we are battling a biopharmaceutical complex and there are crimes alleged. And John is qualified to allege these crimes. The two crimes are fraud. Uh, that, that the public has been defrauded. And the second crime is mass negligent homicide, that uh, because early treatment was impeded, as a result, there were unnecessary hospitalizations and lives were lost. Janet, you had a question? Well, I, I, I really have a comment to make from the standpoint of, of practicing pharmacy. You know, we speak to patients on a regular basis and the fear factor for clients um, was un uncomprehensible. I mean, I've never in our career heard clients say, I would rather stay and die in my own house than walk through the door of a hospital. Never before have I ever had to encourage somebody, you know, maybe you should have a conversation with your provider because they felt like it was a death sentence. And to me, that as a healthcare professional, that that's frightening to me as to where we go forward in the future. Well, let me address this. 
uh, hospitals became very frightening venues for care for a few reasons. One is uh, they had strict isolation uh, procedures. They even uh, carried out contact isolation, which wasn't needed. SARS-CoV-2 is not spread by contact. So uh, healthcare workers wore hazmat suits, what's called PAPRs. All of that was completely unnecessary. Uh, the only thing the CDC states that's necessary is just to wear a mask when we're coming face to face with COVID. So I think the overkill in the hospital made it very frightening, especially contact precautions. It was never needed. Uh, the, the second uh, thing is that once patients recover from COVID, uh, they're protected against risks of hospitalization and death. So COVID recovered families should have been at bedside the entire time. They should have been led in the hospital. And I think because family members were not allowed in the hospital, so the hospitals made that second major mistake of not allowing family visitation for COVID recovered. That created tremendous anxiety. But it went on from there. Hospitals uh, suspended the time-honored tra uh, uh, traditions of what's called medication reconciliation. Any medicine a patient is taking at home or a family member wants to bring in must be provided in the hospital. And, and hospital administrations suspended those uh, intentionally to make it very difficult for families to help out with treatment. And then they also uh, stopped shared decision-making. That is allowing the patient to share in the decisions made in their care. And I think the coup de grace on the terrorizing inpatient healthcare was remdesivir. Now, remdesivir was one of the very first emergency use authorized uh, novel products. It's a intravenous polymerase inhibitor. But by November of 2020, we had a sufficiently bad news coming out on remdesivir from clinical trials that the WHO held a meeting. They involved human ethicists, clinical scientists, European Society of Critical Care, and they all agreed by November of 2020, remdesivir should not be used for inpatient care of COVID-19. Should have been removed from all the hospitals worldwide. WHO said that. And what happened is our health and human services in the United States put a 20% bonus on the entire hospital stay for payment if hospitals continue to use remdesivir against the WHO recommendations. So patients were terrified as remdesivir was infused, they knew there's no chance for hope and remdesivir could cause kidney damage, liver damage, and that could be in the causal pathway to death. So I, I think the use of remdesivir, particularly in hypoxemic patients who are starting to lose their ability to, to you know, make conscious decisions, um, all these things converged to make hospital care uh, a, a complete terror. And, uh, you know, there's dramatic cases of patients, uh, you know, family members just pulling the ventilator tube out and pulling the patients out of the hospital, reviving them with ivermectin. As an example, I saw such a case in Dallas and took pictures with the woman afterwards. She was saved with the McCullough protocol. I mean, literally, the, 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 the family member wheeled her out of the back of the ICU, uh, semi-conscious into a car and saved her life. Uh, you saw other dramatic cases going on, rescues of patients to pull them out of hospitals. Uh, you saw hospital security frisking down people, not allowing them to even uh, take, take ivermectin into family members. Uh, you know, early in 2020, we had the ICON study done by Jean-Jacques Roster uh, and uh, his, uh, his wife and other colleagues in Florida, multi-center clinical trial. Uh, prospective cohort, ivermectin inpatient, dramatically reduced inpatient mortality. Every single American should have received oral 
ivermectin in the hospital. Every single one. It was published in Chess, the best journal. Dr. Rochester testified in the, in the U.S. Senate December uh, 8th of 2020. It was clear. We made it clear to America. So every patient who was denied ivermectin, every patient who was, de- who was given remdesivir, every patient denied a COVID-recovered family member at the bedside, every patient denied medication reconciliation and shared decision-making, that patient now has a case against the hospitals and the doctors who did that. We're starting to see class action cases spring up. There's a big one in California. The lead attorney is Watkins. People should look up that. Uh, Hundreds and hundreds of families uh, involved. Um, I think there's going to be a day of reckoning for all of these uh, injustices that occurred to inpatients. Well, it needs to happen, and I'm glad to hear that. Um, Unfortunately, it takes too long, and it might have to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Is that true? It's possible, uh, you know, under the PrEP Act and the CARES Act, malpractice uh, direct claims are going to be next to impossible, but personal injury, uh, restrictions of civil liberties, uh, fraud, uh, these charges uh, should still uh, have great merit uh, as wrongdoing occurred. You know, I've testified multiple times in the U.S. Senate. I've co-moderated two U.S. Senate panels, multiple state senates. And I'll, I'll stand by my testimony uh, today that of the roughly 10 million hospitalizations, a million lives uh, that were cost with the infection, about two thirds of those could have been spared with early effective treatment and high quality inpatient care. Two thirds is the toll right now. That is a massive amount of American suffering that's really at the hands of uh, public health authorities, hospital administrators and others involved. Wow, those are astonishing numbers. So tell us a little bit about your um, America Out Loud. Well, America Out Loud is a wonderful independent platform. It's uh, run by Malcolm Out Loud, who's uh, you know, won many, many awards as a journalist. Uh, he brought me on a couple of years ago, McCullough Report, one of the most popular programs on the platform. I, uh, it's, it comes out twice on Saturdays, twice on Sundays, podcast network during the week. I also do a featured show with Malcolm on Wednesday afternoon called Pulse, where we take questions from the audience all over the world, curated questions, and I answer them. Uh, We cover various topics. Uh, Americans have been stonewalled on COVID information by medical schools, health systems, and by public health agencies. They're frustrated. They want their questions answered. They come to America Loud Talk Radio to have their questions answered and listen to the McCullough Report. And I bring on experts from all over the world because it's a worldwide problem. And one of the things when you turn on the major media now, you never see any public health officials or doctors from outside the United States. And people come to America Out Loud for that independent, high quality journalism. So how do we, with all the censorship that's been going on over the last three years now, how do we how do we prevent that? How do we stop that? How do we get the word out? Other than platforms like this, what are some other ways? Well, I'm a frequent contributor on Fox and Newsmax, Victory Channel, One American News. I've been on ABC, so I continue to bring uh, the news forward. Um, I, I think it's the collective broadcasting, rebroadcasting. A show like this can probably de- generate multiple segments uh, that you know with. A production as production capabilities improve, start to show some of the data. 
uh, and some of the important um, historical inflection points that I've shared with you. To make these come alive makes a huge difference. I'm a, uh, an admirer of uh, Epoch Times, for instance. I just was on American Thought Leaders. It's running right now where I went on with Dr. Asim Malhotra from the UK, leading cardiologist. But you know, every study I cited, uh, it was shown right there so Americans can see that you know I'm not making this up. Everything is is factual and based in the peer-reviewed published literature. I think the high wire does a wonderful job. They're probably the best at productions. But what's gonna happen, I think, is all of our independent media capabilities are to, gonna improve. I know you probably post a lot of the citations in the program notes, but Americans have, in a sense, pulled the plug. They've cut the cord. They're not watching mainstream media anymore. They've made a giant shift to independent media like your show. Yeah, uh, I think they had to because they just lost lost trust in the mainstream media is really what happened. So speaking of censorship and social media, you were, tell us your history of being um, censored or banned on Twitter. And then you were recently reinstated. Tell us that history. Prior to COVID-19, I was not active on social media. I think I had a Twitter account uh, with the hospital that I, I just didn't do anything with. I, you know, I felt I was at a certain age where I was so busy with email and my grants and manuscripts, I just couldn't possibly keep up with social media. But Senator Johnson uh, influenced me greatly when I testified in the US Senate November 19th, 2020. So listen, you better get busy on social media. Otherwise the message will not get out on early treatment. So I uh, initially started a kind of a, a multi-person C19 panel account, used that for about a year before it was suspended. Then I just started my own personal account and it became one of the more popular physician accounts. I was carefully following the Twitter community rules. Uh, then my account was suspended a few months ago for no reason. It was held in suspension uh, with a case number and then finally reinstored, re reinstalled by the new Twitter administration under Elon Musk. Uh, there was a, a, a huge survey of should they let Dr. McCullough on. And of interest, the vote was 98 to two. So that kind of blew away Trump, who was like 54 to 48. Uh, <laughs> popularity to bring the doctors back on. And so now my, uh, you know, I'm almost on a doubling course, less than a week now of followers. And uh, with the uh, it turns out that uh, we did have evidence that Twitter was automatically unfollowing people who wanted to follow me, uh, shadow banning. Almost certainly I was blacklisted and uh, and then obviously heavily censored to take all these censorship programs off and just let me, uh, you know, make my important points, share with uh, key videos, uh, published uh, uh, graphical abstracts, uh, my Substack, link to my Substack, which I'm just bringing forward the the medical truth every day. Uh, the world wants this. Two thirds of the world's on Twitter, uh, and they're they're going for the truth every day. There's no doubt about it. I um, I'm very careful. I understand. You know, I'm a public figure, and I have important responsibilities in what I say. Uh, and, and I'm never beyond the range of the published data. No hyperbolic statements. Uh, and in um, America and the world has come to trust my judgment. I think far more than our public health officials. So tell us about how you've been medically personally attacked with um, your board certifications. Of interest, you know, I've never been attacked or challenged by a chief of medicine or a chief of infectious disease or another specialist. Never. Not even a bad email or comment. Uh, none have ever wanted to engage. Uh, uh, I've never, you know, I've never been invited to a major medical society so we could 
uh, have a roundtable discussion. I'm a frequent uh, Grand Rounds lecturer and frequent speaker on other topics prior to COVID-19, particularly heart and kidney disease. So there's never been an academic challenge. What I learned uh, in 2021 is uh, the Department of uh, Health and Human Services, United States, HHS, and the White House announced a giant program called the COVID Community Core. And the COVID Community Core was billions and billions of dollars that was infused into organizations without any accounting or reconciliation, including the, the major medical colleges, pediatric obstetrics and gynecology, uh, health systems, uh, uh, community groups, Hollywood, the NFL. And it was basically a government bribe to promote the vaccines. Well, the American Board of Internal Medicine announced a COVID misinformation uh, initiative in September of 2019, which I think is an extension of vaccine marketing. And, um, you know, there's no such thing as misinformation. There's never been a board exam on misinformation. There's um, misinformation as a word came about around around 1500. It was used extensively in Nazi Germany as a propaganda term to try to persecute people. And it was Washington Post said it was word of the year in 2018 because of partisan politics, you say misinformation. So the American Board of Internal Medicine injected this into, uh, uh, into the internal medicine and medical specialists with this policy without saying what we should say or not say, without defining it, without any test questions or learning modules. And then they went back in time and scrutinized my March 10th, 2021 Texas Senate testimony and, and declared that I had uh, uh, made statements that uh, violated the misinformation policy, which didn't exist at the time. So they went ex post facto. Uh, I, I responded to their claims uh, uh, and without any due process, they didn't let me attend a, a, a credentialing meeting. Uh, and then coming out of the meeting, they uh, declared that I should be stripped of my medicine residency, my cardiology fellowship and the board certifications. I should be decertified. And then they produced evidence where they thought they disagreed with me. And now I'm in an appeal process. I've had to, to procure attorneys. Uh, this has been incredibly time consuming and draining to produce all the response documents. And, and, and now I'm trying to appeal this decision with the same group who made the decision. It turns out the Credentials of com Committee, uh, which is uh, a, a chaired uh, uh, by a, a physician, has both physician and lawyers. None of them have any experience with COVID. None of them have ever had state or U.S. Senate testimony. They don't have any publication record to speak of. Now, they're not even a qualified group to, to judge me. Uh, and then we find out that the chairman, the uh, CEO of the American Board of Internal Medicine, Richard Barron, that he's appearing with the PR and marketing firm of Pfizer Moderna at an upcoming meeting in Texas, South by Southwest. Uh, he's appearing with Weber Shandwick. So American Bar of Internal Medicine is directly working with Pfizer and Moderna and their, and their extended marketing force, along with Blackbird AI, an artificial intelligence company. So this breach of conflict of interest is uh, beyond the pale. Uh, and so I'm up against censorship, but it's coming from the vaccine companies. So speaking of vaccines, can we ask you about, uh, I had a person messaged me on Facebook and they wanted me to ask you a question about vaccine shedding and if it can cause, um, if the vaccine sheds to somebody else, 
can it cause them to have a stroke? Cause she had a stroke after she was, um, she thought that it was shedding from the vaccine. Can you um, comment on that? It's hard to say there are no peer reviewed studies of, of serious clinical outcomes with shedding. We have a paper from uh, Hannah and colleagues showing that the messenger RNA is in breast milk. It's getting to babies who are, who are breastfeeding from mothers who've ill-advised taking the vaccine. There's a paper by Helene Benoon, former inserm scientist from Europe, that really outlines the rationale for why shedding probably is occurring. But we're talking about shedding of the messenger RNA, the lipid nanoparticles of messenger RNA. Uh, a paper by Vertic and colleagues has shown it's circulatory in the bloodstream for at least 15 days, probably longer. Curves weren't going down. Spike protein, I think, is less concerning because the seroprevalence data, one study from UT Houston School of Public Health and the Framingham Heart Study, show seroprevalence of some antibodies to fight off the spike protein now are nearly universal, 99% of individuals. So I don't think spike protein is an issue, but could somebody actually get genetic material through shedding? I think it's theoretically possible. We, we need more research on it. Uh, it's hard to advise uh, people who are around freshly vaccinated loved ones what they should, they should do. I'm currently advising 90 days, no kissing, sexual or close contact, but simply don't know. Wow. So where do you think we're going with the vaccine? I mean, it, it, we're still, it's still being recommended for a virus that rapidly mutates. Can you comment on that? Well, the current set of bivalent vaccines uh, didn't undergo human testing. They failed in animal studies to stop Omicron BA4, BA5. And so any theoretical benefit now is lost since the virus is mutated to BQ1 and BQ1.1. So the virus didn't work against its original targets. It's certainly not going to work against its theoretical targets. So it looks like there's no benefit from taking a booster. And Americans have spoken. 87% uh, of Americans are not taking any more shots or boosters. A recent Kaiser Family Foundation survey that was out uh, three days ago or BMI Substack tomorrow confirms that. Americans don't want any more vaccines. They've largely voted with that. Uh, we've had strong calls now to take the vaccines off the market because of safety concerns. They include, you know, they include World Council for Health after many stern warnings, June 11th, 2022, pharmacovigilance report, pull them off the market. I've uh, concluded in the U.S. Senate December 7th, 2022, again, all the vaccines should be pulled off the market. Andrew Bridgeton, uh, the EU, uh, UK member of parliament in the UK, uh, pulled the vaccines off the market. Christine Anderson, EU member of parliament, again, pull them off the market. So India, there are calls to pull them off the market. So I, I think because of the disastrous safety outcomes of the vaccines, there's calls to pull them off the market. So why, why is it not just immediately off the market with all the side effects that, that they've shown? I think the FDA just recently um, is admitting that the Pfizer vaccine does cause clots. Um, and if it's not effective and it's causing side effects like this, is it just about the money? Is it follow the money or what's going on here? You'd have to ask that question of somebody who supports the vaccines. I, I was never comfortable with them. I think on March of 2021 in the Texas Senate, I had some uh, comments of being, about very, being very concerned about the, the vaccines. But looking back, they should have been pulled off the market by February 1st of 2021. Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths with their vaccine within 90 days of its use. Uh, that's astronomical. You tip 5, 10, 15, 
no more than 50 deaths should have been pulled off the market. So uh, any death that occurs within 30 days of a new product, it's due to the product until proven otherwise. That's a regulatory standard. So the vaccine should have been pulled off the market long ago. Uh, those who continue to promote the vaccines haven't provided any rationale. Um, the, the risk of death is simply too high by taking them. So you talked about uh, your Substack. Is this your Substack you're talking about right here? That's it. That's Courageous Discourse. You found it. Thank yeah. you. So tell us a little bit about this. I started it during my Twitter imprisonment. And, you know, while in Twitter jail, you have a lot more time. So I started it with bestselling author John Leake, and we decided to write together to not only cover COVID-19 and contemporary medical issues, but also to bring in the issues of, of the social changes, changes in, in protection of civil rights, civil liberties, uh, and, and so it's a very popular Substack. We have tens of thousands now of followers and growing every day. Uh, one of the things we do is we provide very high quality graphics and always encourage people to use those graphics. Uh, tomorrow, for instance, I'll feature a figure from the Kaiser Family Foundation survey. Today, uh, the title of my Substack is, I can't hear you, a vaccine side effects, a recent paper uh, from Finland showing acute hearing loss with the vaccines in the elderly. This is terrible. I can't tell you how many elderly patients I have who've lost their hearing with the COVID-19 vaccines. You know, losing hearing in the elderly, which is common, uh, it's bad enough that people lose their hearing, but sudden hearing loss results in withdrawal, social isolation, depression, and it's happening now with COVID-19 vaccines in the elderly. Wow. Yeah, it seems I, when I talk to healthcare providers all over the nation, we're hearing all kinds of things from, you know, extre upper extremity DVTs that we've never seen before that we or not never, but very uncommonly that we're seeing now. Um, so the blood clots are definitely an issue. I haven't heard the hearing one. It's very interesting to know. And it's just like if it's causing all these side effects like that, that you know, hearing and blood clots don't seem to be related. It's like, what is going on? Is the spike, spike protein really changing so much DNA that it's causing side effects like that? Well, remember, it's, it's the genetic code for the spike protein loaded on lipid nanoparticles, and they go everywhere in the body. We've never had a vaccine that goes into the brain, goes into the optic and otic nerves, goes into the heart, the adrenal glands, that, that you know, goes into blood vessel walls, I mean, this vaccine going everywhere, I think it's the biodistribution that makes the vaccine so dangerous, so deadly, injuring so many organs. Because once the genetic code is taken up for the spike protein, the spike protein is damaging and lethal to the human body. So you can imagine by bad luck getting just enough distributed to the, to the otic nerve. And then there we go. We have ear damage or eye damage. I've recently reported on blindness happening, both optic nerve and optic artery related blindness and you know clear evidence of spike protein causing it. The spike protein uh, in necropsy studies is found in the heart. It's found in the brain. Should not We should not have vaccines that are going to these critical organs. A vaccine should stay in the arm and cause an, you know immunity to the antigen. That's not happening here. So I think it was the disastrous decision by the vaccine developers. We're talking about BARDA uh, for the military and uh, for the NIH and DARPA for the military, these consultants, these vaccine consultants, vaccine inventors uh, came up with a disastrous product. The lipid nanoparticles, messenger RNA is the worst idea that any 
scientist or inventor can come up with. And boy, Americans are paying the price. So speaking of paying the, paying the price, speaking of clots, um, we have a question from a viewer, Warren Small. Can you ask the doctor about the long worm-like blood clots that have apparently been found in deceased people who had the vaccine? And I've heard, I talked to Dr. Cole and Dr. Cole's medical student. Um, the clots are like something we've never seen before. Can you comment on this? Yeah, just a few comments. Both the respiratory infection, multiple bouts, and the vaccine cause the blood clots. So for instance, in the last uh, week, I've had a patient of mine who's had two episodes of COVID, no vaccine, has a 14-inch blood clot in their leg. So we know the respiratory infection can cause it. Clearly, the vaccines can cause it. Uh, when, when, when the human body dies nowadays and it goes to the, the, uh, to, to the um, undertaker's office, the body is put uh, uh, in the freezer for many days because it has to be uh, processed. We have to get the, uh, the death certificate and uh, all that in process and um, the coroner's office. So, so no body is undergoing instant preservation or instant um, uh, cremation. Now, I know this because I've had some loved ones die in the last year, so I know the process really well. So I think the majority of what you're seeing when, when the undertakers do actually drain the blood out of the body, uh, those are formed post-mortem. And when the uh, blood vessels are examined, they do have spike protein in it. The spike protein folds. It forms what's called amyloidogenic proteins. And so amy amyloid is rubbery, and it tends to form the cast inside blood vessels, but it's a unique manifestation of both the highly prevalent SARS-CoV-2 infection and vaccines in the general population. That's, thank you for that. Um, so the, it's not just the vaccine that can cause side effects like that. It's also the active infection. Yeah, in, in both. It's my experience of people who have both who've had, remember the vaccines don't stop COVID. So people who take the vaccines, they get COVID anyway. And so it's the combination of both that's really driving this. And, um, and, and I've seen uh, lots of thromboses with uh, just the infection itself um, in a whole variety of scenarios. So someone has the infection once or twice and has a, a prostate surgery or has lower extremity surgery, blood clots. I've seen that scenario. I've seen, uh, you know, COVID illness one, illness two, and a renal artery embolus. You know, all of these with no vaccine. I've seen people, no COVID, they take vaccine shot one, shot two, explosive blood clots shooting, you know, to the lungs and in the body, arterial and venous. So all these scenarios exist and they're all related to the spike protein. Interesting. So as we wind this podcast up, uh, Dr. McCullough, I'd like to thank you again, but I want to ask you, what, what do you have a passion for? What drives you? And I'm passionate right now about helping as many people as I can. This COVID-19 has been a disaster, both the respiratory illness and the vaccines. There's been kind of two waves of insult. Uh, the only way out of this is for people to learn more, get themselves healthy, fit, prepared to manage the next episode of COVID-19. Uh, everybody should visit my website. Uh, you had it up there, uh, Peter McCullough, MD, get the McCullough protocol, take a look at the, um, the OTC bundle in the McCullough protocol, which is a wonderful summary of about six things you should have at home. Be ready for the next illness. Uh, I'm a big fan now of the virucidal nasal washes, dilute povidone iodine, dilute hydrogen peroxide. I won't travel without them. As soon as I start to feel viral, whether I have nasal congestion or not, you know the virus is in the nose every time. Use those sprays. Use disinfecting gargles like Listerine or Scope 
they work fine. Everybody needs to be on guard that if we could actually treat these infections earlier, we're not gonna spread them around or end up with severe disease. Well, I wanna thank you so much uh, for fighting the fight. I know you've gotten arrows shot at you and you're continuing to get arrows shot at you. And thank you for fighting because there's a small portion of us in healthcare that are standing up. Um, and if we don't, we will lose medical freedom forever. Maybe we will. Well, thanks for having yeah. me. So I thank you so much, Dr. McCullough. Um, let's, let's please stay in touch. Okay. All right. Thank you, listeners and viewers, for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you. <laughs>